Welcome everyone to episode 42 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and today I've got another unsolved murder for you. The murder of the Dardeen family in 1987. The YouTube channel is coming along nicely, so make sure you guys go and subscribe there. If I can get to 100 subscribers by the end of August, I'm going to do another giveaway for one of the last remaining t-shirts that I have. So make sure to subscribe there to take part in the next giveaway. But let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. This story is a little graphic, so listener discretion is advised. On the evening of November 18, 1987, police went to the mobile home of Russell Keith Dardine and his family just outside Enna, Illinois, after he had failed to show up to work that day. There, they found the bodies of his wife and son, both brutally beaten. Ruby Elaine Dardine who had been pregnant with the couple's daughter, had been beaten so badly that she had gone into labor, and the killer or killers had also beaten the newborn to death. The killings had apparently taken place the day before. Investigators at first believed that Keith was the prime suspect. The next day, however, his body was found in a nearby field. He had been shot and his genitals mutilated. His car was found parked near the police station in Benton. Forensic examination showed that he had been killed within an hour of his family. Residents of Jefferson and Franklin counties, who were already fearful after more than 10 murders had taken place locally in the preceding two years, became even more so. Many armed themselves. Some suffered adverse psychological effects. Rumors held that the killings were the work of Satanists. Police soon ruled that out as well as other motives, most from illicit behavior such as drug dealing, marital infidelity, or gambling. But the crime scene also ruled out rape or robbery as associated incident crimes, and the absence of any clear cause or leads the crime remained unsolved. No suspects were identified in the quadruple homicide until the 2000s after serial killer Tommy Lynn Sells 
following his conviction and death sentence for murdering a teenage girl in Texas, claimed to have committed the crime. However, he was never charged, since prison authorities there would not let him leave the state to assist police in southern Illinois with their investigation, and they as well as the Dardeen family have doubts about his account of the killings. The case is otherwise cold. Both Dardines went by their middle names. Keith, a native of Mount Carmel, bought the trailer in 1986 after completing the training required for his job as a treatment plant operator at the Rind Lake Water Conservancy District's nearby facility. Elaine, who was from Albion, a little closer to Enna, moved there later with their two-year-old son, Peter. They rented the land that it sat on from a nearby farming couple. Keith worked, and his wife found a job at an office supply store in Mount Vernon, the Jefferson County seat. When not working, the couple were part of the musical ensemble at a small Baptist church in the village. Keith sang lead vocals while Elaine played the piano. In 1987, Elaine became pregnant with the couple's second child. They had decided to name the baby either Ian or Casey, depending on whether it was a boy or a girl. The pending addition to the family had led Keith and Elaine to strongly consider moving. By late in the year, they had put the mobile home up for sale. However, that was not the only reason for the move. According to Joanne Dardine, Keith's mother, he had said that he would move back to Mount Carmel even if he were unable to find a job there before doing so, as he had regretted ever having moved to Enna, telling her that the area was becoming too violent. There had been 15 homicides in Jefferson County during the previous two years, starting with those committed by Thomas Odell, a Mount Vernon teenager who had killed his parents and three siblings as they individually returned to the house one night in 1985. Though Odell as well as some of those charged with murder in the other cases, had been convicted, residents of the rural area had become fearful and stressed. A friend of Keith said that after a 10-year-old girl had been raped and murdered in the area in May 1987, Keith became so protective of the family that one night when a young woman came by the mobile home asking if she could make a phone call, he refused to let her in. On November 18th, Keith, who had been a reliable worker at the treatment plant, did not report for his shift. He had not called to inform his supervisor that he would be unable to come in, and calls to his house went unanswered all day. His supervisor called both of Keith's parents, who were divorced but still lived near each other in Mount Carmel. Neither of them knew what could have happened to their son. Don Dardine, Keith's father, called the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office and agreed to drive down to Enna with the house key and meet deputies at the home of his son and daughter-in-law between Illinois Route 37 and the former Illinois Central Railroad tracks, now used by Union Pacific, just north of the Franklin County line. Inside, they found the bodies of Elaine, Peter, and a newborn girl, all tucked into the same bed. Elaine had been bound and gagged with duct tape. Both had been beaten to death, apparently with a baseball bat found at the scene, a birthday gift to Peter from his father earlier that year. 
Elaine had been beaten so severely that she had gone into labor and delivered a girl, who soon met with the same fate as her mother and brother. Keith, however, was not present, nor was his car, a red 1981 Plymouth. Investigators assumed that he had killed his wife and children and was at large. A team of armed police went to his mother's house in Mount Carmel looking for him. The search ended late the following day, however, when a group of hunters found his body in a wheat field not far from the trailer, just south of the Franklin-Jefferson County line, near Rin Lake College. He had been shot three times. His penis was also severed. The Plymouth was found parked outside the police station in Benton, 11 miles south of the Dardine home, its interior spattered with blood. News of the killings made area residents even more fearful than they had already been. Many residents began going about their daily business with shotguns visible in their vehicle's gun racks. After high school basketball games, students would wait in the school building for their parents to come in and accompany them to the parking lot for their ride home instead of socializing outside as they normally did. Early reports from the police about the crime were limited and sometimes contradictory, allowing rumors to spread. The two counties' respective coroners differed on whether Keith had died of a head injury or being shot. Among those who reported the former, it was said that it had been inflicted when he was dragged from a car. The circumstances under which Elaine gave birth perhaps to her short-lived daughter, gave rise to stories that Casey had been ripped from her mother's womb, along with the mutilation of Keith's genitals. This supported speculation that Satanists were active in the area and had performed a ritual sacrifice on the family. The crime was also poised to be the work, along with three other local unsolved murderers, of a regional serial killer. Dr. Richard Gerritsen, a family physician who doubled as the Jefferson County coroner, told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in early December that many of his patients talked to him about the case and how it had disturbed them. One man who said that he lived a half a mile from the Dardines trailer told Garrison that he was having difficulty sleeping and he had lost 14 pounds as a result of the stress. Also unable to sleep was the Dardine's landlord's daughter, who told her parents years later that she kept her bedroom light on and read all night out of fear. Robert Lewis, the Franklin County coroner, felt much of the fear was unjustified. I don't think there is a rational basis for the near hysteria, he told the newspaper. The police are frightening each other. People were so afraid, he said that if someone ran out of gas in the country, he would not seek assistance in any nearby homes, but would instead walk to the nearest highway and hitch a ride. Local police agencies joined forces with the Illinois State Police to investigate the crime. A total of 30 detectives worked full-time following leads and interviewing 100 people. None of what they found proved fruitful. A man later taken into custody early on was released after being questioned. Likewise, a co-worker of Keith's with whom he had reportedly been having a dispute was also cleared. 
No one knew who the couple had anything bad to say about them. A small quantity of marijuana was found inside the trailer, but not enough to suggest that they were involved in dealing. Police even believed that the marijuana might have been inadvertently left behind by the killer or killers. The autopsies found no drugs or alcohol in any of the victims. The coroners put the time of death for all of the Dardines at within an hour of each other. The bodies in the trailer had been killed 12 hours before they were found, and Keith Dardine had been dead for 24 to 36 hours when he was found. Resolving this question, however, made it harder to determine how the crime had been committed since Keith's body was found away from the trailer, and may, he may have been killed at that location rather than with his family. At the trailer, the killer or killers had apparently taken the time to not only tuck Elaine's body into bed along with her children's bodies, but also to clean up the scene, suggesting that they did not feel any urgency to leave. The amount of effort involved led police to theorize that the crime may have taken place at night. The trailer was on Route 37, a busy state highway, but could be seen at the time from Interstate 57, almost 2,000 feet to the west. It was also an open question as to whether there was one killer or multiple. Determining the motive of the assailant was a particularly difficult part of the case. The back door had been left open. There was no evidence of forced entry. A VCR and portable camera were in plain sight in the living room. Elsewhere in the house, equally accessible cash and jewelry remained. The facts argued against robbery as the motive. Elaine had not been raped or sexually assaulted. Police also found no evidence of any extramarital affairs involving either Keith or Elaine that might have motivated the other party to a jealous rage. A stack of papers with sports scores found in the house led them to wonder whether Keith might have incurred gambling debts. However, Joanne Dardine told police that her son was so frugal, frugal that he raised money for his young son's college fund by reselling 50 cent cans of soda at work for a small profit. Despite the widespread fear that the case engendered, Lewis, the Franklin County coroner, did not believe the Dardines were randomly chosen. I believe it was a very personal, deliberate thing, he told the Post-Dispatch. A police report on cults told the newspaper that the rumor that Satanists were responsible was untrue, since such groups often would mutilate bodies more extensively, harvest organs, and leave symbols and lit candles at the scene of their crimes. None of these indications had been found at the Dardines trailer. Police did allow, however, for the possibility that while the Dardines were chosen purposely, it may have been a case of mistaken identity by the killer or killers. Joanne Dardine said later that she had considered other motives someone might have had for killing her son and his family. I think that someone wanted Keith to sell drugs and he refused she said in 1997. Or there's a possibility someone liked Elaine and she wouldn't accept his advances and he took out his rage on both of them. We just don't know. Eventually, 
the police exhausted all leads and had to start working other cases. Two FBI profilers came to the area to review the evidence. They were able to make some suggestions, but generally found that the crime defied their typical analytic methods. Joanne Dardine worked to help work to keep the public from completely losing interest. Throughout the 1990s, she regularly called the one detective still assigned to the case, offering possible leads she had learned of or asking for any new information he could share. She gathered 3,000 signatures from area residents on a petition to the Oprah Winfrey Show, asking producers to do a segment on the killings of her son and his family. They turned her down, saying the crime was too brutal for daytime television. America's Most Wanted had a similar reaction at first, but then changed its mind and ran a segment in 1998. The show did not generate any new leads. The police were briefly interested in serial killer Angel Matrino Resendez, then known by his alias Rafael Resendez Ramirez, after he surrendered to authorities in Texas in 1999. He often traveled around the country by hopping freight trains, choosing his victims near the tracks they traveled and often beating them to death. While those elements suggested the Dardine killings, authorities in Illinois were never able to connect him to the crime. Another serial killer in Texas would soon bring himself to the attention of the investigators in Illinois. On the last day of 1999, Tommy Lynn Sells cut the throats of two girls near Del Rio, Texas. One survived, and she helped police identify him. He was eventually convicted and sentenced to death for that murder, and another one earlier in 1999, where he had killed a girl in San Antonio. While he was awaiting trial on the first murder charge, he began confessing to other murders that he had committed while drifting around the country, sometimes by hopping freights as well. One was the Dardine family. Sells said that he did not remember the details of all the crimes that he admitted to, which he describes as a coping strategy from the sexual abuse that he endured as a child in the Missouri boot heel, but he did remember that one. In the mid-1980s, Sells was living primarily near St. Louis, roughly 90 miles northwest of Jefferson County, and making money from working at a traveling carnival and fairs as a day laborer, or through theft. For the latter pursuit, he often hitched rides with truckers or hopped freights without any particular destination in mind. Anywhere a ride was going, I was heading that way might be in Illinois today and Oklahoma tomorrow, Sells explained later. It was through those modes of transportation that he became familiar with the Inna area. On one trip through Jefferson County in November 1987 that he claimed in 2010 to have met Keith at a truck stop near Mount Vernon or in a different retelling at a local pool hall. In both versions, he says Keith invited Sells home for dinner. After the meal, Sells was simply planning to move on, but then Keith allegedly triggered his anger by sexually propositioning him in one account to a threesome with Elaine. He forced Keith at gunpoint to drive to where his body was found, 
killed and mutilated him, then returned to the trailer to kill Elaine and Peter, who were witnesses, although he says it was at this time the result of uncontrollable rage that Keith's alleged sexual offer had set off in him. I was just so pissed off that I took it to the maximum limit. Rage don't have a stop button. He implied that it explained why he had killed the infant Elaine had delivered during the crime as well. In a third version, Sells dispensed with the encounter with Keith and the sexual proposition entirely. According to that account, he got off a freight he had hopped near Enna. When he saw the Dardine trailer with its for sale sign, he saw an opportunity for, for a killing. After drinking beers and waiting for the right time, he knocked on the door and told a weary Keith that he was interested in buying the trailer. He then overpowered Keith, made him bind and gag his wife and son with duct tape, and forced him to drive his car to a nearby field at gunpoint, where he sliced Keith's penis off, telling him that he was going to take it back to Elaine. He then shot and left him there. At the trailer, he raped Elaine, then beat Peter, Elaine and the newborn to death. After cleaning up, he drove Keith's car to Benton. To some investigators, Sell's 2014 execution by Texas was justice for the Dardines as well. He was never charged with their murders, but he remains the number one suspect, Jefferson County State Attorney Douglas Hoffman said a week after the execution. Sheriff Roger Mulch agreed. The county deputy sheriff who interviewed Sells in his Texas cell says that he knew details of the crime that had been kept confidential. But even they agree that Sells may have added details to his story, as he was known to do, something that has left considerable doubt about many of the killings that he confessed to. Other investigators are less sure. While Sells' account is consistent with the general facts of the case, they say most of what he told them had previously been reported publicly. When Sells was asked about some information that had been withheld from media accounts of the killing, he seemed less reliable. His claim as to which seat of Keith's Plymouth he was shot in is believed by the evidence, and when asked how Elaine's body was positioned, he had first answered incorrectly, then correctly, which may merely have been a lucky guess. I know people got their doubts, Sells said in his 2010 interview with the Southern Illinoisian. He responded to some of them, They say there is no physical evidence tying me to the Dardines, but there wasn't for any of them because they wasn't looking for me. I moved. I was always a transient. Police in Texas confirmed that Sells was responsible for 22 murders, but came to believe that in conscious imitation of another Texas serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas, he was trying to avoid the death penalty by confessing to crimes that he had not committed and taking advantage of the judicial system's gratitude. Their counterparts in Illinois thus wanted to take cells to Inna so they could see how well he knew the area and the locations relevant to the crimes. He claimed that he could lead them to missing evidence, However, Texas law does not allow prisoners on death row 
to be taken out of state, and authorities there were unwilling to find a way to make an exception. So Duncan declined to file murder charges for lack of sufficient evidence. Doubts about Selza's confession are not limited to local law enforcement. Friends and family have issues with some of his claims. For one, they doubt that Keith would have, would have invited home someone from out of town whom he had just met to even have dinner with a family, especially given the heightened fear in the area after all the killings over the preceding two years. If he wouldn't let a young girl in to use a phone, he wouldn't let a 22-year-old man in, said a friend referring to Sells' age at the time. They also find Sills' claim that Keith made a homosexual advance toward him unlikely. They had never perceived him as even possibly having an interest in his own sex, and the police did not find any evidence of that during their initial investigation. The detectives who interviewed Sells believed that if he did kill the Dardines, he invented that detail to make the crime seem more justified. In confessing to other crimes, he often included similar stories to make it seem like the victims had provoked him. Joanne Dardine's position on Sells' guilt has evolved. In 2000, when the confession was first reported, she told the Chicago Tribune that she was as certain as the police that he was a suspect. She believed only talking to him could clear up any lingering doubts. I've always wanted to know every detail, she said. Some people may think that's gory, but when someone does something to my family, I want to know why. Seven years later, on the 20th anniversary of the killings, a year after Selza's initial execution date had been stayed so a federal appeals court could consider a question about his mental state, she said she was 99% sure and expressed again her interest in possibly talking to Sells. There's just a little bit of doubt there. Not that he didn't do it. I'm wondering if maybe somebody helped him. In his 2010 interview, Sells was skeptical of what such a conversation might accomplish. Joanne wants to talk to me. If she wants to come here and talk to me, scream at me, yell, kick me, hit me, she should have that right, he said but he said that no apology he could make could possibly give her closure. Sorry ain't gonna cut it. So what is there to say? I could tell her sorry every day the rest of my life. It's not going to stop her pain, and one thing I do know about is pain, and it don't go away. The two never did talk. By the time of Sells' 2014 execution, Joanne had come to believe he was not the man who killed her son daughter-in-law and grandchildren. I wanted him to stay alive until I knew positively that he didn't do it, she told the Associated Press shortly afterward. The things that he said do not match up with what I know about Keith, she told the Pat Gowan, the post-dispatch reporter who had originally covered the case in 1987. A lot of people think it's done and over with, but to me, it's not. Now that is a crazy story. What do you guys think? 
do you think that they got the right guy or just someone looking to pad their list of kills? I guess at this point, we'll sadly never know the truth. Now, I've got one more story for you guys today, and it comes from YourGhostStories.com. This story happened 11 years ago. I was 20 years old, living in my first apartment with my then-boyfriend. It was a cute little layout, very vintage style. It was on the second story, just above a liquor store, in an older neighborhood in San Diego, California. Though it was an older building, it always felt very peaceful. My boyfriend Mark, at the time, was an electrician's apprentice, and he worked for a small but well-known company. At the time, it was just him and his boss, and they were working on old Victorian houses in a nearby neighborhood just outside of downtown. Mark had been with the company for about a year at this point, and was working on a lot of jobs by himself. After a couple of days working on one particular house, it was finally time for him to work in the attic. The house was completely empty due to the remodeling. When he entered the attic, however, he noticed a hand-carved small wooden canoe resting in a corner. It was about the length of his forearm and not too detailed. He thought that it was peculiar, but figured someone had just left it behind in a rush to get everything out and started the remodeling job. He continued about his work, but felt very drawn to the canoe. Later that day, when his boss came to check on him, Mark showed him the little boat. He mentioned it was the only thing left behind, and he asked that if he could take it home. His boss thought that it was okay, seeing as how the house was owned by the bank and everything else had been thrown away anyway. Later that evening, as we were settling in after work, Mark remembered the canoe with excitement and went to the car to bring it upstairs and show me. It was an interesting little carving, and I, being a collector of antiques, thought that it would look fantastic on a shelf or in our bedroom. We went about our evening as usual. It wasn't until I decided to start getting ready for bed that I got this overwhelming feeling, a very negative energy all around me. It was so intense that I asked Mark to keep me company while I was doing my nightly ritual in the bathroom. After that, we decided to go to bed. It was pretty late, and we both had work early in the morning. We both fell right to sleep. We were exhausted. But only after about an hour of rest did I wake up. I felt that extremely negative energy again all around me. I tossed and turned. I just could not fall back asleep. It wasn't like something was watching me so much as something was just very powerfully negative in the room. I couldn't even get out of bed to use the bathroom, as if I was hypnotized by this incredible energy. I fell asleep finally, but only for another hour. The computer we had in the room was turned off because we rarely used it. When I woke up after an hour, I noticed that the computer was on and making all kinds of odd noises. The monitor was flashing on and off. I knew this couldn't have been possible because when I looked at the power strip, it was turned off. At that point, Mark was awake, sitting behind me on the bed, looking at me in disbelief. He told me that he had been tossing and turning all night and hadn't had a wink of sleep. 
we both went to the living room and decided to just sleep on the floor. The next morning, we were discussing our sleepless night over breakfast. We both agreed that it had something to do with that canoe. We also made an agreement to throw the canoe away when we got home from work. We both arrived at home that evening, and I went straight to the room, grabbed the canoe, and we headed out. We didn't want to throw it away anywhere near us, so we drove to the next neighborhood over. We found a park and went to the first trash can we noticed. For some reason, Mark was having trouble just putting it in the can and walking away. I tried to convince him that it was the best thing to do, but he said he just felt wrong about it. He said he would just set it on top of the trash can. It felt very wrong to me to leave such a negative thing out in the open for somebody else to find and experience. I just walked away. I wasn't going to argue with him about it. Later that evening, I asked him why he wouldn't just throw the canoe away. All he said was that he felt it physically impossible to put it in the trash. That was as far as it went. Once the canoe was gone, we never felt that energy again. Well, that's going to do it for today. I hope that you enjoyed the stories, and if so, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find this podcast. We've fallen into a nice groove of listeners, getting about 1,000 plays every two weeks. So sometime in September, we should reach 20,000 plays total, which is a number that I honestly never expected. It's not very likely, but it's definitely possible for for us to hit 100,000 plays by the end of the year. So I'm going to ask everyone a favor. Please share this podcast with everyone you know, be it on Facebook, Instagram, or even Twitter, which I'm not even on. Let's try to get to 100,000 total plays by the end of the year. I truly love doing this, and I would love for it to one day be my full-time job. And with that, I'll be able to devote so much more time to make it so much better. But with all that being said... Once again, thank you everyone for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.